What a joy to sing some wonderful hymns and songs, uh, rich, full. Uh, uh, just love the progression of the last hymn, uh, working our way down from God speaking to our hearts to where he is building his church and the earth will be filled with his glory. And we just see his plan laid out uh, in that wonderful, wonderful hymn. Um, the last time I was here, uh, uh, that was in April, and we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and our church has been working our pastor's been preaching through 1 Corinthians, so, uh, so we kind of try to stay on top of that. And uh, so back then we were in 1 Corinthians 2, and uh, we considered how we can know that God's word is God's wisdom because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And I in no way expect you to remember that. Uh, that's what I preached on, but, uh, but that's what we did. Uh, and this morning we're going to look at 1 Corinthians once again. Uh, but we're going to jump ahead a few chapters. So if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 um, and verse 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 7. Um, as I probably mentioned last time, or if you've uh, read Corinthians uh, or been in it at all, you realize that it's a letter in which the Apostle Paul wrote to the church and to the believers there at Corinth uh, to address some issues and some problems uh, that had been communicated to him uh, through letters and uh, the number of letters is debated and all of those things, but it had gotten back to him about problems that were facing the church there, uh, a variety of serious uh, spiritual issues that needed to be addressed. Uh, and as you've read 1 Corinthians, you know it's a very powerful, powerful letter. It's filled with the same kinds of issues uh, that believers and churches face today uh, and have through all ages, uh, but today as well. Uh, up to this point in the letter, the Apostle Paul has dealt with a number of things. Factions in the church, a uh, wrong view of leadership at the beginning of the letter, an infatuation with the wisdom of man. Uh, they were missing the wisdom of God and the message of Christ and the message of the cross. Uh, immorality, 1 Corinthians 5, church discipline, the church's relationship to the world, uh, lawsuits among brethren, Questions about marriage, remarriage, singleness. I mean, the list goes on and will continue to the end of this, uh, end of this letter. Uh, in chapter 8, uh, as you may recall, if you've read it or if you haven't, the Apostle Paul begins to deal with the issue of things sacrificed to idols. So we see that in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 8. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, he writes. Okay, so he's, he changes and begins this new topic and this new issue. Uh, apparently some of the Corinthian believers uh, were going to, uh, to pagan temples, uh, participating in feasts, dining at meals, eating food that was sacrificed in those temples. They might not have necessarily been actually sacrificing animals there, but uh, they were participating there in some degree in eating this meat uh, sacrificed to idols and pagan gods. And uh, the thing was, apparently it had gone back into Paul, that they were arguing that they had a right to do that. That they had a right to do that. Because, as he's going to begin here in 1 Corinthians 8, to deal with, because they had quote-unquote knowledge. Because they possessed the knowledge that idols were not real. That they're not really gods. They knew, okay, and they tell, apparently got back to Paul. They knew that there's only one true God, uh, that there's only one true Lord Jesus Christ, 
But it's in him we live, it's in him we exist, it's in him that we have our salvation as we have sung today and been reminded of today. And therefore, they're saying it's okay for them to go to these temples and eat this meat. So the Apostle Paul presents the argument, uh, as he begins in 1 Corinthians 8, he presents this argument that knowledge uh, that they claim to have, even theologically correct knowledge, in and of itself, knowledge for knowledge's sake, if you will, he says what that can produce is pride. But he says that it's love that builds up or edifies. It is love, not knowledge, that uh, he will try to drive home is the ground and basis of our Christian behavior. Knowledge is not the end in itself, but knowledge is a means to an end. The end is love. And we see that in verses 1 through 3. You know, he, he talks about if anyone supposes he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by him. So he, he deals with this issue of knowledge and love. And then in verses 7 through 13, he continues to address the issues of knowledge, rights, and love, and how those affect our relationships uh, in the church and as brothers and sisters and in the body. Uh, And so he sets forth, I think, a very powerful principle that I know I need to hear uh, often and that I think we need to learn and that we need to live out. And I would put it this way. It's rather long. Our relationships with our brothers and sisters are to be governed by the law of love, is what I'll call it, the law of love, not by the law of personal rights. Let me say it again. Our relationships with with our brothers and sisters are to be governed by the law of love, not by the law of personal rights. Let me give some hypothetical illustrations, or not so hypothetical. It's 10 in the morning, and little Susie comes running to mom and says, Mommy, why do I have to let Johnny play with my toys? He has his own toys. It's not fair. It's 4 p.m., and George comes home from a long, hard day at work. He's beat. He drops his lunch buckets. Yeah, we used to carry those at one time. Uh, He loosens his tie. He makes a beeline for the recliner. He grabs his newspaper. Well, we used to read those too. He grabs his newspaper. Now he grabs his iPad and he opens up, you know, Wisconsin State Journal or whatever. And he sits down and he sighs and he's he's finally, he can sit down. And from the kitchen he hears, George, I could really use some help with dinner. And and before before he can even reply or respond, two two kids come running, Daddy, Daddy, the the dog's knocked over the aquarium. And George screams, doesn't a man have a right to at least one minute of peace? I can see it sounding familiar, isn't it? It's 7 p.m. Mabel calls Mildred. They're lifelong members of We Do It Our Way and Don't You Forget It Community Church. (laughs) Can you believe the gall of that new member? That she would question how we have run our ladies group What does she know anyways? No one has a right to change what we have done for years. You know, we live in a culture, we live in a culture that has codified the rights of men. We're familiar with Thomas Jefferson's words, aren't we? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights 
And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And many of us right now are crying those words, okay, in this political season. And the cry is what? It is. We have our rights. And that's true. We have certain civil rights. We have been blessed by God to live in a country where we have certain rights. And we ought to do everything to protect those civilly, politically, in our country. But unfortunately, I think too often our rights have become our God. Our rights have become our God. You know, we'll often say, maybe you've said it or you've heard someone say, I have a right to, and you can answer and end that statement however you want. I have a right to, and that becomes the governing principle of our lives. Do we have that right? But as Christians, I think the Apostle Paul reminds us, as followers of Christ, we are not to be governed by what my rights allow me to do or what my rights allow me to have, but we're to be governed by what love moves me to do, by what is best for and what helps and builds up someone else, my brothers, my sisters, the body of Christ, not myself. And I believe it's a convicting and a radical principle that we need to, uh, we need to try to practice daily. So let's look at verses 7 through 13. Again, as I had mentioned in 1 Corinthians 8, certain believers in Corinth are going to temples, they're eating meals, they're eating meat, that, uh, and they're saying it's okay. It's okay to do this, Paul, because we know these idols aren't real. We know there's only one true God and only one Lord, Jesus Christ. Okay? Uh, and, and, and we, therefore, have a right to go. And there's nothing wrong with that because of what we know. Okay? And actually, Paul agrees with them. <laughs> he does. He agrees. That's true. Right? But then we get to verses 7 through 13. So follow along as I read there. However, he writes, however... Not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care, lest this liberty, lest this right of yours somehow becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And thus, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, that I might not cause my brother to stumble. Two main points, I believe, that the Apostle Paul brings out here regarding what governs our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And the first, I would put it this way, and I think we see it in the first, in verses 7 through 12, the law of personal rights, and that's how I phrased it, the law of personal rights thinks only of itself and ignores what is best for the brethren. These Corinthian believers believed they had the knowledge 
that would allow them to go to temples. But Paul said that may be true, but but by exercising your knowledge and your rights, you're ignoring the fact that you may harm your brethren. And you're not acting out of love, you're acting out of selfishness. You're thinking only of yourself and your right to do what you believe is okay to do. And you don't care about your brethren. And again, they're allowing their knowledge and their rights, not their love, to guide them. Now, in the context, they're going and eating meat. They was demonstrating that they didn't care about and didn't understand two crucial things. This is what Paul is going to bring out. Two crucial things. First, they didn't care about the spiritual well-being of their brethren. I think we see that in verses 7 through 11. That's what he's driving home here. Look at verse 7. As we've read already, however, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol and their conscience being weak. Notice is what it is defiled. So Paul says that not every believer in Corinth has your knowledge to this group, whoever they were, how many ever there were that were saying it's OK to go to the temples and eat this meat, the sacrifice to idols, because we you know, were knowledgeable. We have this great knowledge. He's saying not, not every believer has your knowledge. Now, his meaning, I think, here is probably not that as Christians, they did not know that idols there that were being worshipped are not real and that God is the only God and that Jesus is Lord. It's not that they didn't know that. They probably knew this. I mean, these are truths that are fundamental to being a Christian, to being saved, and he's writing to brethren. So I'm assuming they knew, you know, theologically that this was true. But the idea probably is, as the rest of verse 7 indicates, these believers were believers who apparently were formerly engaged in this kind of idolatry. They were probably saved out of it. They know how idolatrous it is by experience. And woven into their minds and conscience is, is how... How idolatrous it is. And so uh, they have an aversion, apparently, to going to the temple, to idol worship, to eating meat sacrificed to idols. So much so that if they go and if they eat, they're experiencing a conviction of conscience and probably fear being drawn, maybe, or tempted back in to their old ways. And so in that way, their consciences are weak. Okay? They, they couldn't handle this. They were struggling with this. And the sense is that they perhaps have not fully assimilated the truth that the Corinthians knew was true. But but perhaps because they've not been strengthened by practice, as Hebrews tells us, to discern good and evil, uh, they they were struggling with the, the truths about these idols and the true God and about Christ. And so they can't go and eat without a sense of guilt. And in that sense, they feel they have sinned and they are defiled or they are stained if they would do that. And so these, and these so-called spiritual brethren who seem to have all this knowledge, they don't seem to care. They don't seem to know, perhaps, that this is happening. So in other words, they're ignoring the well-being of their brethren. They're only interested in maintaining their rights. I think we see this in verse 8. Notice what what Paul writes in verse 8, but food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worst if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. Now the question is, 
whose words are these? Are these Paul's or are these these people's words? Okay. And I tend to believe this is probably not Paul declaring a truth, but he's probably reflecting and reiterating their argument. That's what they're saying. They're saying, Paul, look, food doesn't commend us to God. Food doesn't affect our relationship with him. It's just food. It's just a matter of indifference. It's, we're not further from God if we eat or don't eat. We're not closer to God if we eat or don't eat. Food and meat is neutral. It doesn't matter. And it seems to be that's what they're saying. Now, is that true? Yes, it's true. <laughs> food is food. It doesn't matter. They're right. You eat certain food, you don't get closer to God. If you don't eat certain food, you don't get, fur- you know, you don't get further away from him. But Paul said, I think what he's saying is just because food is neutral doesn't mean that your actions regarding it are. Just because food is neutral doesn't mean that their actions regarding this food are neutral. They're not. The food itself may be neutral, but going to pagan temples to dine and to eat could cause one of your brothers to stumble spiritually to be encouraged and strengthened and influenced, to be drawn back into sinful idolatry, even spiritually ruined or destroyed, someone for whom Christ died. And therefore, that's not neutral. (laughs) It's not a matter of indifference. We see that in verses 9 through 11. But take care, lest this liberty of yours, this right of yours, somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died. He says, be careful. He warns them, be careful by exercising and insisting on your rights to eat this meat that means nothing, that could do grave spiritual harm to your brethren. could cause those who Christ died for to stumble, to fall, to sin. So they were caring only about their own rights. They, they're not caring or they're blind to the effect that it's having potentially on their brethren. So Paul warned them to insist on exercising their rights at the expense and disregard of their brethren and the spiritual well-being of the brethren, that was wrong. That was wrong. In fact, that's the next thing I think they failed to understand. Not only did they fail to understand that their actions were spiritually harmful to their brethren, the second thing they failed to understand is that their actions were sinful. They were sinful. That's what we see in verse 12. And thus, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you do what? You sin against Christ. The exercise of the freedom, the rights, the liberty of the Corinthians at the expense of the well-being and the potential detriment of their brethren, especially if it's in regard to something that they claimed was a matter of indifference, is this ironic or what? It's, it's, you know, Paul, this doesn't matter. It's just food. But then to turn around, okay, and eat it in disregard and potentially harm your brethren, okay, 
that's, that's a big issue. It says if it's, if it's in regard to something that they claim to be a matter of indifference, that it didn't really matter in regard to the Lord, that was to sin against the brother, and it was sin. And as he comes right out and says it, it's sin. Not only is it sin against their brethren, which was bad enough, but even more appalling, it's sin against who? Sin against Christ. To sin against the one for whom Christ died is to sin against Christ, to whom that child of God belongs. A reminder of Matthew chapter 25. And Christ said, Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, Insomuch as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. Remember, Jesus said, You know, if you, if you do this you know, to this little one, you do it to me. If you don't do it, you don't do it to me. And so really, I mean, listen to the magnitude of what Paul is saying. He says, To exercise our personal rights in such a way as to show no care to spiritually harm the well-being of our brethren is to do no less than sin against Christ. And that should really challenge us. <laughs> now, I think the tendency, or at least you know, when I think about this, the tendency might be at this point to think of the kinds of things in our day that might correspond to what the Corinthians were doing. You know, this issue is in, you know, in the context is eating meat sacrificed to idols. But I think we have a tendency to think, well, you know, what are the kinds of things that this might apply to in our day? You know, the kinds of things that some feel they have a right to do but might offend others. And we start to think, well, yeah, this is the kind of issue that, you know, Paul would be talking about today in regard to this. You know, we start thinking of things like music, that it's some it's okay to listen to and some think it's wrong places where some people think it's okay to go and some people don't think it is. Okay. Uh, personal habits and practices okay, that, and preferences that some think are okay and some think that aren't. And we start thinking of this whole list of a plethora of things that, you know, these are the kinds of things that we can take this passage and we can make a proper application to when it comes to uh, this passage. But can I suggest that in these particular verses right here, uh, I don't think that's Paul's main intent. I don't think his intent is to get us or the Corinthians to avoid a specific type of behavior. He was merely using this particular situation and this particular issue, meat sacrificed to idols, to drive home the greater point or the greater principle. The main idea to the Corinthians and to all believers I think that's this, that, that our personal rights are not what should be guiding our behavior as Christians. When the exercise of those rights and asserting those rights is detrimental to the brethren. I think Paul's main concern is dealing with their attitude. Their personal rights and their personal liberty was taking priority over their care for their brethren. Now, later on in this letter, in chapter 10, he's, he's actually going to, to, he's going to get to the point of dealing with the practice of going to temples. And he's going to flat out call it what? Idolatry. <laughs> he's going to say, how can you go to temples and, you know, and the altar of Christ? At the same time as Christians, you can't. He's going to deal with the specific thing here, okay, eventually. But at this point, 
right? I think he's dealing with what motivates their relationships to their brothers and sisters. I think right here he's, he's saying first, it must not be your rights and your rights alone. If it is, then you don't care for your brethren and you're sinning against them and you're sinning against Christ. I think if we understand this, I think it's powerfully convicting. I know it is for me. This means that you and I need to be more careful and need to be on guard against the same kind of attitude creeping into and controlling our lives and our relationships with our brethren. That my personal rights and what I think I have a right to is of first priority. Are we, are you insisting on asserting your rights, asserting your liberty, your privileges in such a way? Do we do that in such a way that we hurt and hinder our brothers and sisters? And even more, that we don't care if we do because well, this is what I have a right to. Are we governed by the law of personal rights? Do you find yourself saying, What's the big deal? This has nothing to do with my relationship with God. This has nothing to do with our relationship with God. And we're not even thinking about how that thing, okay, whatever it is that we, have, we think we have a right to, we're not even thinking about how that thing and our actions in regard to it are affecting our brothers or our sisters, those for whom Christ died. I think that's what Paul is driving home. Corinthians were right. They had the knowledge. They could go to the temples. It didn't bother them. But he said, that's not what's important. What's important is, what is that doing to your brothers and sisters? In fact, that's what he's going to drive home next. So the law of personal rights thinks only of itself and ignores what's best for the brethren. But the second thing is the law of love gives up its rights for the good of the brethren. The law of personal rights thinks of myself and what I want. The law of love thinks it's is willing to give up its rights for what's good for the brethren. And we see that in verse 13. This is the conclusion of this, this section of, of text. Therefore, <laughs> so he said all this and he says, Therefore, if food, if meat causes my brother to stumble... I will never eat meat again that I might not cause my brother to stumble. I mean, can you feel the impact of this you know, to the heart of the Corinthians? The Corinthians, you know, the Corinthians, you know, you may insist on your rights to do what you think is okay to do. And go ahead and eat this meat. But Paul says what? If I knew that eating meat, even if it is nothing of significance to the Lord, if I knew it might cause my brother to stumble and hinder him spiritually, possibly harm him, I would become a vegetarian and never eat meat the rest of my life. Now the point is not the meat, is it? The point is not the meat. It's not just the particulars. As we've already said, whatever your favorite particular is that you feel you have a right to and that you feel it's, it's worth fighting for, it's not that. 
It's the principle of insisting on their rights. And Paul said we should be willing to give up our rights for the spiritual good of others. We should be governed by the law of love. Which, what is love? It's a willingness to give of ourselves for the good of someone else, even at great expense and sacrifice to ourselves. That's, that's what James calls what? The royal law. It's the same law that governed Christ. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, Paul writes there. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Set aside the independent exercise of his godly attributes and rights as God. Taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Christians are to be governed and guided in our relationships with one another by the law of Christ, by the law of love, by what edifies and builds up and benefits and what's for the good of others. Not, we're not to be governed by what gives me what I think I deserve or gives me what I believe I have a right to. See, in reality, the person who seeks to do something just because he or she is allowed to do it or because he or she has a right to do it, that person has not learned the meaning of love. And that's really what it says when we get into that mode in our lives. And what we are most interested in is, is doing something because I know I'm okay, I'm allowed. It's not forbidden. It's, it's okay. And I have a right to it. But if I'm going to go that direction, when I'm potentially going to hurt a brother or sister in the Lord or not demonstrate love the way I should... And I don't understand love. So what governs your life? What governs my life? What motivates our behavior? The drive for personal freedom, the drive for personal rights, the drive for personal liberty, the law of personal rights, if you will, or the law of love? Are you and I like Paul? Would, be, would we be willing to give up our rights even for the rest of our life in a particular area for the good of someone else? Would we be willing to do that? That, I think, is the challenging part of this. And I think that's what Paul's trying to drive home. Richard Foster, you may have heard of him. He's an author. He wrote books years ago when I first was saved. Uh, I don't even know if he's still alive. But he wrote this once. He wrote, In submission, we are free to value other people. Their dreams and plans become important to us. We have entered into a new, wonderful, glorious freedom. The freedom to give up our own rights for the good of others. For the first time, we can love people unconditionally. 
We have given up the right for them to return our love. No longer do we feel that we have to be treated in a certain way. We can rejoice with their successes. We can feel genuine sorrow at their failures. It is of little consequence that our plans are frustrated if their plans succeed. We discover that it is far better to serve our neighbor than to have our own way. <laughs> Can we really say that? It's far better to serve our neighbor than to have our own way. How many times do we just say, I want my way right now. <laughs> I don't care what it is. I don't care how small it is or how big it is. It's the same principle. I think what what the Apostle Paul and what the Scripture challenges us is we have to wean ourselves from being governed by our rights. I think we find it hard in our culture and in our country because we have grown up with what? We have certain inalienable rights. I mean, we, we grow up with that. It, it's infused in us. I think we have to step back as Christians and say, we need to be careful. Our rights are not the primary thing. So our relationships with our brothers and sisters are to be governed by, I think, by the law of love, not by the law of personal rights. When we're governed by the law of personal rights, we selfishly think of only what is best for us. When we're governed by the law of love, we sacrificially think of the good of someone else. I think it's a powerful truth. But the question, but the question is, is this truth going to make a difference in our lives? Is it going to make a difference today and tomorrow and the next day? Is it going to make a difference? Are we going to apply it? As I think Earl prayed today, are, are we going to be willing to change when God's word challenges our hearts? And where it applies in our lives, will we obey it? Will it make a difference in our homes and in our family, at work, and in our church? And one last thought. And I would put it this way. Do you know the one whose life is the epitome of this principle? <laughs> Jesus. Do you personally know him? The one who gave the most for our greatest good. The one who demonstrated the pinnacle, the, uh, the ultimate of the law of love by giving his life for us that we might have new life in him. And if you're here and I don't know, you're here this morning and you don't know him, embrace him. He gave his life. He gave up his independent exercise and rights, if you will, and liberty as the God of the universe to take on the form of a man to die for us that we might have life in him. And I trust and pray that we each know him today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, praise you for the challenge of your word. It, it is you know, powerfully challenging to my heart, and I pray to all of us. I pray that we would heed uh, Paul's admonition that came first to the, the, the believers at Corinth and by way of your word to us. And I pray that uh, we would be challenged by it. Help us, Lord, to be willing to give up our rights that we might serve and love others for your glory. And I pray that you would work in our lives and help to make this truth real and help us to live it out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.